We'll turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark is the second gospel. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the shortest of the gospels. And we're going to talk more in just a minute about Mark himself and who he is and about how he goes about telling the gospel story. But let me just kind of, as we begin this new series, give you a little introduction to what we're going to be doing. There are 16 chapters in Mark, and we'll probably spend about 30 weeks on it. So that means half a chapter each week. Uh, Some of those chapters have, you know, maybe 30 verses. Some of them are more like 65 or 70. Uh, We're going to take a pretty decent-sized chunk each week, and we're going to move through it quickly. If you've been around here for a while, you know that our pattern, as far as sermon series, is to go Old Testament, New Testament, back and forth. That helps us to make sure that we're preaching the whole word, that we are um, getting our, our minds around what all of Scripture has to say. And so we finished last year with Psalm 119 this morning. Uh, We're beginning, heading into this new year with the Gospel of Mark. This Gospel is written to followers of Jesus. Another term for that is disciples. And we say that our mission as a church is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus. So the Gospel of Mark should be very appropriate to us as we're working on understanding what it means to follow Jesus. What I'd like to do is kind of help you um, just get your mind around what we're going to do this morning as kind of an introduction and give us uh, kind of good footing maybe for the rest of the series. So the, the message this morning will be in two parts. The first part of it is going to be an introduction to the book of Mark in general. And what I want to do is I want to walk through Mark's sources, Where does he get his information? Because Mark wasn't one of the disciples. Mark's style, how is he unique and different as a writer, different from some of the other gospel writers? Mark's story, in other words, his own personal story, who is he? What do we know about Mark? And then Mark's subject, what is it that he's writing about specifically? And then Mark's setting, what is it that, that leads him to write? What is the situation into which he's writing this gospel? So as we begin, let me go ahead and read Mark 1, 1 through 15. The second half of the message, we're just going to look at verse 1. So that's as far as we're going to get this morning is verse 1. But I want to read the first 15 verses just to give you kind of the context and setting for where we're going. So follow along with me starting in Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water... Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're going to look at the majority of those verses next week. We will get to verse 1 by the end of the message today, but let me just kind of start by introducing you to Mark in general. First of all, let's talk about Mark's sources. Where does he get his information? Mark is not one of the disciples, so he didn't witness all of the things that he's telling us about Jesus. So where does he get his info? Well, we know from the rest of the New Testament that Mark spent time with both Paul and Peter. And the early church fathers are in agreement that Mark gets the information in his gospel from Peter. Now, I'm just going to give you one example of an early church father who writes about this. This is from Papias. And he writes, and the presbyter, John, said this, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or deeds of Christ, for he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's saying. So Peter didn't write a gospel, is what he's saying. Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For of one thing he took special care, not to omit anything he had heard, and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. So, even all the church fathers agree that when Mark writes, his source, where he gets his information, is Peter. And Peter was an eyewitness of all of these things that he's telling us about Jesus. So the content is coming originally from Peter, who was present, but it's coming through Mark in Mark's own style. And the other thing to remember here, too, is this. Mark spent a lot of time with Paul, and we know Paul writes all these different letters that kind of explain the theology of the gospel. And so it's reasonable for us to assume that Mark knows Paul's theology pretty well. So as he writes the stories about Jesus, he's not writing something that would conflict with what Paul teaches about the gospel. So we should expect that there's going to be good agreement between what Mark tells us about Jesus' life and ministry and what we find in the rest of the New Testament as well. How about Mark's style? What does he like as a writer? Well, the thing that's unique about Mark is that he is very fast-paced. He doesn't give us as many details as a lot of the other writers, and so his gospel is shorter. It moves very quickly. He focuses on actions, not words. So, for example, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find that Matthew includes five large teaching blocks where it's just recounting like a sermon that Jesus gave. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. That takes up Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Mark doesn't do that. There's a couple of extended teaching things, but not nearly like the other gospel writers have. Instead, Mark is focusing on what Jesus is doing. His focus is on the actions. He uses words like immediately, all the time. So it's just, the, the gospel just kind of keeps moving very quickly. 
One commentator I was reading, Peter Lightheart, commented, he said, Jesus is born, baptized, tempted, and calling his disciples before we get halfway through the first chapter. I mean, that's just the way that this gospel moves. And that's part of the reason that I'm going to try to keep moving through the sermon series fairly quickly is to give you maybe that feel for how Mark wants us to read his gospel. In his style, he also uses a lot of irony. It's kind of a gentle sarcasm. Uh, usually it's directed at the religious leaders or at the disciples for their lack of understanding or for their hypocrisy. Mark also uses a lot of echoes from the Old Testament, shadows of things that we've seen if we've read our Old Testament. So as we go throughout the series, we will have to kind of keep turning back to the Old Testament to understand exactly what Mark is getting at in the way that he tells us the story. Now, how about Mark himself? What is Mark's story? Who is he? Well, Mark is also called John Mark, so sometimes you'll hear him referred to as John, not the disciple John, different John, and sometimes the writer will actually say John, whose other name was Mark, to help us know for sure which one we're talking about. But he's a Jewish Christian, and his mother owns a house, probably a significantly large house, in Jerusalem where the church, the early church, met at least some of the time. We know that because after Peter was set free from prison, in Acts chapter 12, we read this. Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So when the early church decided to come together to gather to pray for Peter when he was thrown in prison, where did they go? They went to John Mark's mother's house because she seems to have hosted that early church there in Jerusalem. We also know that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas, who traveled with Paul. And he joined Barnabas and Paul on their missionary journey. Acts 12.25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. However, at some point in the journey, Mark returned to Jerusalem. We don't know why, but here's what we read in Acts 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Whatever the reason was for why he left, Paul refused to take him along on another journey. And this led to a split between Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Silas went one direction, Barnabas and Mark went another direction, all ministering to various churches. But we read about that in Acts chapter 15. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, that's kind of a, like, kind of a, a point in scripture where you go, whoa, uh, you don't expect to see something like that happening amongst the leaders of the church. 
But at some point after this, Paul and Mark were reconciled. We don't have the story of it, but Mark was with Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. You can see that in the book of Philemon. And Mark represented Paul on a mission to Asia Minor. When you read Colossians, you find in chapter 4, Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, toward the end of Paul's life, he writes to Timothy. Second Timothy, by the way, is the very last writing that we have from Paul. And it's kind of sad when you read it. I mean, you can tell that Paul is um, discouraged in some ways by the number of people who have left him, by the situation that he finds himself in. And so he's writing to Timothy, and he talks about how he's been deserted by everyone except Luke. And then he says this in chapter 4. He says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. I think that's, um, scripture isn't pointing it out to us, but if you pay attention and you realize this is someone who abandoned Paul, and now what is Paul saying about him? He's very useful to me. I think that's cool. Uh, That shows you what repentance and forgiveness and restoration can do in the life of a believer. Now, when Peter wrote his letters, when he wrote 1 Peter, Mark was with him serving in Rome. And Peter writes, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. And here's the point. Mark was serving God, and then he failed in some way. He disappointed Paul. But that wasn't the end of the story. He returned and he was useful for ministry. He had the affection of both Peter and Paul. And God used him to write this gospel. So as we read this gospel, we'll see plenty of failures. Plenty of disappointments. But part of the message is that Jesus is in the business of restoring people. And when he restores them, Mark is going to show us, he restores them to feasting, to fellowship and then to serving. They're healed in order to serve. And in that sense, Mark is writing from personal experience. Well, what is Mark's subject as he writes? His overall subject is the gospel. But the gospel, the good news, is much more than what most of us tend to have in mind when we hear that term. It's an announcement of the victory and enthronement of the king, Jesus. And Mark's gospel is the backstory of how this comes about. Now, we'll also see that this victory and enthronement come in a very different manner than anyone was expecting. It comes by way of suffering and by way of the cross. Now, in light of that overall theme of the gospel, of Jesus as the victorious king taking his throne, Mark is going to touch on a number of other themes too. So we'll see things like John the Baptist as the forerunner 
and the fulfillment of prophecy. We'll see the end of exile and a new exodus. Those are big events in Israel's history. And as Mark tells us what Jesus came to accomplish, he's putting it in that language. He's saying the exile, the spiritual exile, is ending in Jesus. And there's a new exodus about to happen as Jesus leads his people out of slavery. We'll see the themes of calling and vocation as Jesus calls people to follow him. John the Baptist is called. Jesus is called. The disciples are called. And if you're paying attention as you read it, you as the reader are called to be a follower of Jesus. And when Jesus calls someone, Mark shows us, he restores them, he heals them, even resurrects them. And there's always a battle that happens between Satan or demons and Jesus and or his followers. And so there's a spiritual battle going on. And the restoration that Jesus works results in feasting. People are restored to the table, to fellowship, and then they are sent out to serve. And that pattern happens over and over throughout the Gospel of Mark. And so for the reader, calling and restoration results in discipleship. But the way of Jesus is victory through suffering and serving. We also have the theme in this book of opposition from official Israel, Jerusalem and the, the religious leaders. And we also have the theme of the temple. The temple is very important. It's representative of Israel and its leaders. And John, or excuse me, Mark is showing us that Jesus is about to announce judgment on the temple. Jesus judges and warns. He himself replaces the temple. And the temple will be destroyed in A.D. 70. How about the setting? Now, this is really important for us to understand. If you want to get kind of behind the scenes, why is this gospel written the way that it is? Mark is writing to address a particular crisis in the early church. There's a reason he's writing this, okay? He writes for an audience that is in Rome, or more generally in Italy, around the year 65 AD. Nero has been emperor for a few years now, and the first four or five years of his reign were actually very good. People liked him. But then things started to happen. Um, Nero's advisors talked about how evil he was, and for the first few years, they were able to kind of keep his, um, his evil proclivities under wraps. In other words, they, they kept those things hidden. They kept them private. His public persona was good, but eventually those things kind of worked their way out. And one of the first things that happens is that there's a fire in the city of Rome in AD 64. And that fire began in a crowded area of shops near the Circus Maximus in Rome. And it spread to other areas of the city very quickly. It lasted a full week. It was put under control, but then it broke out again. This time, when it broke out, it started from the home of the head of the Praetorian Guard. Now, there's, Rome is divided up into 14 different wards at this time. Only four of them were untouched by the fire. Three of the wards were completely decimated, nothing but ash and rubble. So the majority of the city is kind of destroyed here. And rumors quickly spread that this fire had been officially ordered by Nero. 
the historian Suetonius said that it was so openly an act of Nero that many of the leading men of the city wouldn't even stop the men who came onto their estates with firebrands and lit fire to their homes and their buildings. They wouldn't even stop them because they didn't want to be found in opposition to Nero. And everyone knew this fire was what Nero wanted. Another historian of the day, Tacitus, said that gangs had been hired to stop anyone who was trying to put out the fire. Well, eventually, after the fire was put out, after it ran its course, Nero embarks on a program of urban renewal, widening the streets, rebuilding with better materials, creating parks, things like that, which if somebody sets out on that kind of a course, generally people are going to be happy with that. But when people realize this is why Nero wanted the city to burn, was to clear the way for this to happen, they were not happy with him. Public sentiment turned strongly against Nero, and nothing he did would change it. So he needed a scapegoat, and he found a scapegoat in the church, the Christians. So what Nero did was he blamed the Christians for the fire and then began rounding them up and persecuting them. Many of them were arrested. Many were killed. Nero would dress them in animal skins and have wild dogs attack them and kill them. He crucified many of the Christians in Rome. Some of them would be dipped in oil, put on, torches, or on poles and used as torches to light his gardens as a public spectacle for the people of Rome to see. So the question for the early church in Italy would be, what does the Christian faith look like in a context of suffering and martyrdom? If Jesus really is the victorious king, why are his people suffering? If Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't, why are Jesus' followers being martyred? That's the context for Mark's gospel. How can Jesus' followers be expected to be faithful in suffering? And Mark's answer is, because Jesus suffered too. Wasn't he the king, though? Yes, but not like they expected. He came to suffer and die. So just like Jesus went into the wilderness, now they're hiding out in the catacombs. Just like Jesus faced slander and false accusations, they now face these same things. Just like Jesus was betrayed by a friend, they too have had people who were part of their own church family who abandoned the church and turned in the Christians to the Roman government. They've been betrayed too. Just like Jesus had followers and friends who fell away because of persecution and affliction, they too have friends who have fallen away. And Mark gives us Jesus sharing with his followers what the high cost of discipleship just may be. And these Christians in Rome are experiencing that high cost. Just like Jesus' followers abandoned him at his darkest hour, they too have experienced that abandonment. Jesus had warned that his followers would be turned over to councils and beaten and betrayed by family and hated. Jesus faced all of those things first. Jesus said that those who wanted to follow him would have to take up their cross and deny themselves and follow him. 
Well, Jesus would literally take up his cross first. Just like Jesus was scourged and mocked, they too face public humiliation and torture and mockery. See, Mark is telling his readers, you've heard the message of the gospel, right? In the letters from Paul and others, you've, you've heard the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus the King and the salvation that he achieved for his people. Now here's the backstory. This will help you understand why you're experiencing the suffering you are. And here's one specific thing, a point of application for us today that I think is helpful. If you're in Rome and your friend in your church community has turned on you, he's apparently abandoned the faith, he's even betrayed you, can you forgive him? When he repents and comes back, can he be welcomed? Well, think of who's writing this gospel. Mark, who abandoned Paul, but he returned and became useful for ministry. And he's writing it based on the remembrances of Peter, who denied Jesus and abandoned him, but who also returned and was forgiven and became one of the apostles through whom the church was built. So can you forgive the one who, in a moment of weakness, walks away from the faith? If you know this gospel, you can. Well, let's look at this first verse of Mark's gospel. Mark 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I'm going to explain this just by looking at the terms that we have here. The term gospel, first of all, means good news. In the Roman context, in the Roman Empire, it's a public announcement of victory or enthronement or even of the birth of a new emperor. I shared with you last week, as we were talking about the Christmas story, the Prien inscription from 9 BC. I'll just give it to you again. This is just an excerpt from it. The emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order, peace on earth, and whereas, having become God manifest, God seen visibly on earth, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. He's fulfilling the prophecies. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world, and catch this, the beginning of good news concerning him, concerning Caesar. Note that phrase, the beginning of good news concerning Caesar. And what do we have in Mark 1, 1? The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Caesar said that he was the Son of God. Mark says, I want to tell you the real good news, the real story. See, Mark's language subverts Caesar's claims. And that's really important if you're a Christian in Rome, under the thumb of Caesar. Who is Lord? Not Caesar, but Jesus. This word gospel also, though, has a Jewish context. When the Old Testament Jewish prophets talked about good news, gospel, it meant return from exile. 
they had been in exile in Babylon, but the prophets said God would bring them back. And it would be God himself who would do it. Well, now that had happened physically. They were back in the land. But spiritually, the exile was not over. God had not returned to the temple. They were still under foreign rule. They were still spiritually in exile. Isaiah had written in Isaiah chapter 40, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah says that when the exile ends, it's going to be God himself who comes in his might and rescues his people and he's going to lead them like a shepherd. That's going to be ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus. A few chapters later, Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The way scripture speaks of good news or gospel is so much bigger than a personal relationship with God. It's an announcement that Jesus is king and that announcement comes with a call to bow the knee in submission to him, to follow him in his footsteps. When we get down in Mark chapter 1, when we get down to verses 14 and 15, we read this. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God the good news, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. What the, the prophets have been promising is about to happen now. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is an enthronement announcement. Repent and believe in the gospel. God the king is now acting in the person of Jesus to end the exile and defeat the enemies of his people and put his promised king on the throne. And you are called to submit to this king. That's gospel. Let's go backwards for a minute and ask about the word beginning. Why does Mark say that this is the beginning of the gospel? Well, remember, he's writing the backstory to the message of the gospel that these churches have already heard from men like Peter and Paul. Mark is saying, let's go back to the beginning of this Jesus story so that you can understand the message fully. But additionally, if you're writing a book of the Bible and you start with the word beginning, you're probably intentionally calling to mind the book of Genesis. In Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the one who calls into existence things that have not been. And it reminds us then that this gospel is a work of God. It is God who initiates salvation. It is God who brings this about. 
Mark says it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title, and it means anointed one or Messiah. Anointed is saying it's someone who is marked out for a particular task. The Messiah, the anointed one promised in the Old Testament, was royal, someone who would be a king. And kings were anointed as they were called and marked out for their task. The Messiah was the long-awaited king promised in the Old Testament. And now Jesus has arrived as that anointed one. We could simply translate this Jesus the king. And then we have one more term. The term the son of God. And this is another term that draws on the Old Testament. Israel was called God's son. In Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son. But the term is more directly appealing to what God said to King David. To be the son of God is to be Israel's king. In the ancient world, the king was thought of as the son of the gods or of God. Now, God is giving David a promise about a descendant that he will give him. This is 2 Samuel 7. And he says this, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. What would that house be? What's the king's house called? It's a palace, right? But what is the house that God has in mind? It's the temple. Because the temple is God's palace. Okay? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this promised descendant of David, who will be the king, will have a throne that is established forever. And God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So there you have the connection between being the king and being the son of God. We have the same connection in Psalm 2, which we sang earlier this morning. Listen to the language of being the king, being the son, being the anointed one in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, his anointed is the one who has been marked out for this task of kingship saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What is God's response when the people, the rulers, the powerful people of the earth, the kings of the earth, do not submit to his king? What is his response? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, I have a king that I am installing and I'm putting him on the throne on the holy hill Zion and there's nothing you can do about it. And who is the king that God is installing on the throne forever? It's Jesus. Now the psalm switches at this point and the king, the anointed one, now is the one who is speaking in the next three verses. He says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. You see, God installs him as king, and that means he's the son of God. You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this king is going to have a kingdom and how far is it going to extend? To the ends of the earth. All of the nations will belong to this king. So what should the response of the kings of the earth be? The last three verses of the psalm. Now therefore, O kings... Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When Mark uses the term Son of God, it has all of that wrapped up in it. Now, Mark calls Jesus the Son of God right off the bat. Verse 1. As you read the Gospel of Mark, you will see demons calling Jesus the Son of God. You will see God the Father speaking from heaven and calling Jesus the Son of God. But what you will not find is any person, any human, recognizing Jesus as the Son of God. Not even the disciples, until the very end of the book, when Jesus dies on the cross, and the person who recognizes him is a Roman centurion. And here's what he says. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. It is not until the cross, when Jesus suffers, that he's recognized for who he really is. All of this points to the movement of the gospel. As Israel rejects her Messiah, the gospel announcement is now going out to the Gentiles. So we have these bookends. At the beginning, Mark tells us this is the beginning of the gospel of King Jesus, the Son of God, and then finally at the end, a Roman centurion recognizes him as the Son of God. Now we say that our mission as a church is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus. I think that the book of Mark will challenge us on exactly what following Jesus means. It means receiving the gospel announcement that Jesus is king, not First and foremost, that I ask Jesus into my heart, but that I bow the knee to him completely. No area of life is off limits to his lordship. And because of that, it may mean suffering. Jesus' victory and enthronement does not mean that I will not suffer. If my Lord suffered, why should I expect that following him would necessarily be different for me? Following Jesus will mean repentance and forgiveness. Just as Peter denied Christ and Mark abandoned Paul and his ministry, we too may fail in our efforts to follow Jesus. But just as they repented and found forgiveness and restoration and healing and they were made useful again, we too can follow that example. So let's ask God that as we study this gospel of Mark together here in the first part of this year, he'll use it 
to help us learn together more fully what it means to follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you even just for this very beginning of the Gospel of Mark and for those oh-so-important things that are told there about Jesus and who he is. Help us to not have a narrow, boxed-in view of what it means that Jesus uh, brings a gospel, a good news, to our lives. Help us to understand that this is something that radically alters the reality of our entire world, not just some small compartment of our interior lives. Help us to be open to the radical call of the gospel on us as we read through this gospel of Mark. I pray that we would be willing to follow. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that we would find repentance and forgiveness when we fail. And that we too would one day be able to have someone say about us that we're useful for ministry. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.